Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Stephanie Brookby. She's Director of Customer Value at Pendo. Welcome, Stephanie. Hi, Jeremy. Great to be here. I always like to cut right to the chase to deliver value to the listeners. So I'd love to start by asking you, what's your favorite sales or leadership book and why? My favorite sales book is Skip Miller's Selling Above and Selling Below the Line. I think it's just a really simple, clear framework that really works in any kind of sales situation. It's not situational to SaaS or CPG or or anything like that. For me, and kind of thinking about where I first got exposed to Skip Miller and the above the line, below the line concept was pretty early in my sales career, but it really helped me think about my buyer and, and the buying process. He does a really good job of articulating that bifurcation of the deal. When you start to speak to someone above the line, the business buyer versus someone below the line, the practitioner or the person who's actually going to be leveraging your product, just how different their buying needs are and the need to really serve both of those and then bring that back together in order to successfully execute a deal. And so I think that's why I always go back to it no matter where I am or what meeting I'm preparing for. I'm kind of always thinking through that framework and and utilizing some of his concepts in that preparation. It's also one of my favorites. I read it a little while back, and it's one that's, I think, less well-known than a lot of books that folks will mention. Definitely recommend that book as well. So the next question I like to ask people is, what's the first thing you ever sold? So throughout high school and throughout college, I tutored, which was a great way to make money and a great way to, you know, spend time with younger kids and people who are formative. I think I really enjoyed it in terms of taking something that I was particularly good at, study skills and putting frameworks in place to prepare you for whether it's writing an essay in a classroom or developing a thesis. So I really enjoyed doing that. And I think in terms of selling, I built out this network and really proved the power that is word of mouth and the power that is also, you know, getting out there and and networking within a community. The optimal upside is, you know, made a lot of great money doing it. (laughs) So many of the folks that I've spoken to for the podcast and in other walks of life did have some sort of hustle during high school and college. Is that something when you're hiring people that you look for or it's a nice to have but not need to have? I always look for some essence of scrappiness and whether that's like a side hustle I look for people who go into even like larger organizations and find an area of opportunity to either become an expert or to like really refine their skills and almost like carve out a practice for themselves. Because I think that scrappiness and being able to see opportunity and generate a concept around it is a really important skill in sales and something that I think sets apart great reps from average reps. So you're tutoring in high school and college, and I'll mention it since I know you're too humble to mention, but you graduated with a dual degree in uh, English and communication from Stanford University. So quite impressive. Congratulations. Thank you. Which I guess speaks to the fact that you were tutoring people in writing and thesis building. Uh, Yes. (laughs) 
I was tutoring my friends in calculus for free. So I think you were a lot smarter than me to actually find a way to monetize that skill. But talk to me about your first job out of school. Yeah. So I was hell bent on finding a way to be in New York City. And this was unfortunately about the same time that our economy crashed. So it was an interesting time um, to want to be in New York. But alas, I was determined. And, you know, coming out of Stanford and, and kind of my focus a lot with both you know, my English degree as well as my communication degree was kind of the intersection of communication and technology. And so when I started looking for opportunities in New York, I really gravitated to the idea of being on the ground level of a digital shop and really understanding the opportunities when it came to digital advertising and and digital marketing, because I felt very passionately. It's funny, in my interview at Rosetta, the managing partner asked me like, why do you want to be in digital? And I pretty naively said, because everything's measurable. Uh, (laughs) Which at the time, in my mind, like that was truth upon entering into the space and kind of understanding just how unmeasurable so much of what marketing and advertising does was at the time, I think was eye-opening. But that's really what drove me to it was this idea that we could use these channels to really understand and drive behavior in consumers and deliver measurable results for a customer. And so I really focused my search on digital marketing kind of consulting firms. And I I wanted it to be both the consulting aspect because I knew I would get exposure to a lot of really great thinking um, and kind of how do you take a problem and derive a solution. But I also wanted to be exposed to what is SEO? What is SEM? At the time, like social channels were emerging. What do these mean in terms of the tool set as a marketer, you could be leveraging and and putting that together to really create a customer journey. So interviewed with Rosetta, got an entry level AE position there. And to our discussion earlier about like things I look for in reps, I immediately knew the track of account management might not necessarily be for me. It felt a little bureaucratic and I didn't know how much I wanted to be on that side of the world, but I was really interested in the evolution and the development of social channels as part of this tool stack. I went to my managing partner and said, hey, I think we could build a practice around social media marketing and social media channels for our customers. Would you let me kind of build this out and develop a playbook and some skills and practices that all of the account teams could be leveraging here at Rosetta. And she said, yeah, sure, go for it. And so that was a really great way for me, not only to get exposure to the platform side of the house and the vendor side of the house of really understanding those platforms, but then also thinking about how do you position this? What's the value a customer wants to get out of these channels? And how do I help them articulate what are KPIs and what are milestones that we need to be benchmarking against to either say, yes, this is, seems naive to say now, but Facebook is a channel that we want to continue to invest in and explore for you know, our brand. Were you in more of the account management function or were you also hunting new business? So started in the account management function. And then as a result of kind of building out this social media practice or, you know, innovation center, if you will, I got to be part of a lot of the new business pitches. Do you remember the first few or or first one like that? And and what was that like? It was nerve wracking. And, you know, I was bottom of the totem pole. So a lot of what I was doing was building 
collateral and talk tracks for, you know, a managing partner to deliver. But at the same time, I was brought into those rooms because there were questions around the technology and how it would work with different legal concerns. And so I had a really great mentor within Rosetta who really encouraged me to like have my seat at the table and be confident in the things I knew and to be a little bit of a disruptive voice when I needed to be, because this was kind of new territory for everybody. So I think that helped me a lot. But at the same time, like a lot of learning situations along the way where it really made me consider who I wanted to be in terms of my career and what kind of path I wanted to carve wherever I was going to go next. You talked briefly about hooking up with a great mentor. I mean, I know a lot of listeners you know, maybe at different stages in their careers, for those who haven't yet cracked the code on finding those great mentors, how did that develop? I was always really encouraged to seek out people that you admire, seek out the people you want to be in the next 10 years, and never be afraid to ask for time, but do it judiciously and be respectful that they might say no or that their time is limited, but don't ever be afraid to ask. And so when I, you know, started at at Rosetta, I was just really mindful and just being critical and and like being comfortable going and putting five minutes on someone's calendar for coffee or just asking people's opinions around, you know, some of the senior leadership who they thought, you know, was doing interesting things or had interesting perspectives. That really pushed me to just explore and and be open to speaking with different people and and seeking out different perspectives. And my mentor there, his name is Jim Halliday, and just really a, a truly innovative thinker, but also just a very empathetic manager. I really respected how he treated everyone within the organization. And so I felt like getting time with him and, and getting the ability even just to pick his brain for a few minutes, um, whether that be biweekly or a month, was just hugely valuable and definitely shaped the way I think about my management style and, and how you know I look to build a team and the qualities I look for others, definitely. As you reflect on your time at Rosetta, um, you know, what were sort of the what was the biggest thing you learned there that that you carried forward? Gosh, um, I think number one, like just never being afraid to ask. I think if I hadn't kind of honed in on this opportunity and sought it out, I would have been so bored. (laughs) And like, you know, just not pushing myself to, I think, my full capabilities. Um, You know, I think it's a tough road when you're kind of lowest man um, at an agency because there, there are a lot of layers and you're dealing with clients who are demanding. And so I think putting myself through that program, but also finding other opportunities to expand myself and my skill set was super formative and important. At the time, Rosetta was an independent agency. The role I took on gave me exposure to really how large advertisers or customers think about their marketing mix. And so I got to see kind of everything from print and sales rep enablement through the digital channels and understanding media buys, um, as well as what does that translate to, to the website and all of these different things. I just felt like I got a really, really great breadth of experience without having to go deep into any of those. But I knew wherever I went next, I could speak to them and have a perspective and a point of view about them. 
So I felt like that was one of the best things I took away from there. And I think, like I said, advice I give to young graduates is, you know, find opportunities where you're not going to necessarily go super deep into one skill, but you're going to get exposure to a lot of things and you're going to get to wear a lot of hats because that just makes you so much more flexible and agile in the next step you take in your career. Yeah. And, and so often that is a smaller company thing that if you go into a big company, you sometimes can't see the forest through the trees, right? That you're turning the crank on whatever it is they need you to turn the crank on and, and you don't get that exposure. Absolutely. Well, then you made a move that I think a lot of people would love to move to. You uh, you moved to Google where you spent, I think, eight years after that. Yes. I'll take you on that journey. I fared almost three winters in New York, and that was about all I could hack. <laughs> and I decided I needed to get back to California. I moved back and was able to stay at Rosetta for, I think I stayed on for about a month and a half working remotely out there, which I knew was not going to be forever, but it provided a nice bridge. And I was very um, fortunate to kind of set that up well. Um, but it gave me the opportunity, gave me a little bit of time on the ground to figure out, okay, where do I want to go next? And in my mind, it was either go to a big platform like a Facebook, like a Google and build a career there, or I want to go to a startup. I was young, not risk adverse and was you know, excited about the idea of building something. And I found Wildfire. And at the time when I met with Wildfire, it was 15 people, a very small sales team, but growing super rapidly. And I had the opportunity to meet with a leader who I immediately was just in awe of. And that is Victoria Ransom. She is just, again, truly an empathetic leader, but also just one of the most articulate and thoughtful human beings um, I've ever had the occasion to meet with. So I met with her and, and they were clearly a very small, scrappy team growing very quickly. And based on my background, it was like, well, we don't have a customer success or you know account management function yet, but we're building a subscription-based product that we think will necessitate that. Would you consider coming on as a sales rep and really learn the product, learn the sales process, learn what our customers and prospects are asking for, and then in time, move over to build out the account management team. And I immediately said, yes, I think this would be a phenomenal opportunity, despite really, I mean, I think at Rosetta, I had some inclination of sales skills, but I didn't know how to use Salesforce. I didn't know the basics of cold calling, but I kind of just had the confidence that I could figure it out. So jumping in, I did. And it was it was phenomenal. I loved sales. And I think joining when I did was total green pastures. We didn't have bands. We didn't have regionalization. Anyone, anything was a prospective customer. And all we had to do was find the right person to talk to, which was fun. It was part of it that I really enjoyed doing was thinking through how do I navigate these somewhat sometimes complex organizations and find the person who's actually going to want to listen to me. Did you tend to engage larger companies or were you selling to more mid-market or everything in between? It was mostly a mid-market sale at the time. When I was actively selling, it was definitely more mid-market. And it, that was the nature of the product. It was pretty um, like a point in time campaign, not as much of the management piece of it. So I did that for, gosh, a little shy of a year as an AE, 
learned the thrill of the hunt um, and just how good it felt to close deals. And then the time came, we were launching our new subscription platform and I transitioned over to build out our account management and account strategy teams, which I think that was a really important moment in my journey towards value engineering and really thinking about how do we take someone who's gone through a pretty seamless sales process who understands feature and functionality, how do I translate that into business impact? How do I develop a team that isn't technical support, that is really managing this relationship and building a partnership over time? And I think that was a really critical kind of bridge for me to to go over because it was very challenging, (laughs) but at the same time, incredibly fulfilling. And so that was a really incredible year and a half. And then we were acquired by Google. Got it. So you were already doing, you had already started on that value solutions, value engineering journey, even before the acquisition. Yes, we definitely was in motion. So we built up a super strong account management and account strategy function. Months prior to the acquisition, we brought in a new head of, of enterprise sales, a gentleman named Paul Embry, who was incredibly transformational at Wildfire. One of the first things he did upon joining as as head of, he started as head of enterprise sales, eventually just became our, our head of sales, was to build out a sales engineering team and a value engineering team. His kind of call to arms as to why these functions were so critical were in order for us to win up market, in order for us to really capture the mindshare of big strategic customers We can't just sell on the value of our technology working. We need to sell on the value of what our technology will transform for our customers. And that was a huge change in our sales muscle. But also, I think just as an organization, it helped us grow up and become far more transformational in how we approached our customers and the engagement with our customers. You mentioned that Paul built both a sales engineering team and a value engineering team. Why not have that be the same team? Why separate that? Really, it's about the constituents that those functions serve. They're absolutely a sister team, right? Like there's overlap and they work best together. They're working in tandem to uncover those business issues, to uncover the outcomes we're trying to drive. Why can't the same person be both the sales engineer and the value engineer? Why why does that need to be two different people? I think it's just a different skill set. In younger like sales organizations, those can absolutely be the same person. I think when you get into an enterprise sale, it's really important for those roles to be differentiated because they're speaking to different people and because their work output is specific to the audiences they're serving. Yeah, I'm with you. And I think the work output is so very different. I think it's also the method by which that work output gets created that I find the sales engineers or call them what you like, solutions consultants, product specialists, they need to be on call and incredibly responsive. Absolutely. And I think also like creative in how they think about technology. And I feel like the minute you start to mire that in, we need to build out a business case and a business model and collect data endpoints. And I just feel like it's a different mindset and skill set at the end of the day. 
yeah, I'm with you. And then yes, there, there is some deep work and deep thinking that the sales engineers will will do, but the value engineers like really need to put themselves in a cone of silence and think very, very deeply for periods of time about building out these value decks. So you're in this in this company pre-acquisition by Google, and Paul comes in and he says, let's build out this function. Had anyone been doing that before or you had to kind of craft that? Paul came in and like every great leader, brought with him other great leaders. Um, and so he put in place my manager, Monisha Deshpande, um, who remained my manager, I would like to note, for seven years. <laughs> because again, when you find great people, it's really hard to leave them. And she had built a value engineering team at SAP. And so she came in and that's where she had worked with Paul previously. So she came in and kind of worked with myself, as well as I think at the time, it was two other people to really build out this core competency and this function. And so between her expertise and kind of myself and my two other colleagues expertise in terms of what we had been doing as account strategists and building out that team started to really put into place what value engineering was at wildfire and then that quickly then translated into um after post acquisition we functioned pretty much as an independent part of google for about a, one or two years and then we shifted um to another product so i think to your original question he brought in great leaders who kind of had done this elsewhere and then mixed that with people who really understood the impact wildfire could have for customers. And then together, we were able to really build out well, what does our framework look like? What does our ROI framework look like? And how do we put this into motion in the sales process with, you know, some of the biggest advertisers out there? I'm going to zoom a little bit forward to your current role, which is director of customer value at Pendo, because now you get to do what that team was brought in to do at Google, you get to do that at the new company. So as you think about context here is to advise the listeners, if they want to build out a value engineering function, what are the levers that they need to pull? What are the key things they need to do to build that function? First and foremost, I think the number one thing that enables a value engineering team to be successful is leadership support. And I'm talking all levels of leadership, sales management, customer support management, all the way up to the CEO. I think it's really, really important because it is changing the way your entire organization thinks about how they communicate with prospective and active customers. When I came into Pendo, our CRO, Bill Binch, identified that this was going to be a really important function to have in place as we continued to go up market and really build out our enterprise and strategic functions. And his voice to me and kind of helping shape my mission was, look, like you're going to come in and you're going to ruffle a lot of feathers because you're disrupting the status quo. You're telling people that how we used to sell around speeds and feeds is great, but isn't going to work anymore. And you got to take a step back and you might have to slow down in order to be more effective in the long run. And so I think having leadership support around that and constantly echoing to the sales force to the revenue team that like, this is how we are going to go to market from here on out in a value-based way when we're going to lead with business outcomes and then support with solutions is really, really critical to the success of this function. So I think that's number one. And number two, you've got to be ready to be scrappy. 
in order to build out ROI, in order to understand the impact of a piece of technology on a customer, you've got to dig into data. And so when I say scrappy, you got to find the people who know the data really well and will be your advocate and your helper, right? And actually turning that into insights that will be meaningful to your customers. So the minute I came in, I found out we had a data scientist. I have a weekly stand-up with her because she knows our data, knows the impact we can have better than anybody. On top of that, I wanted customer stories and understanding how customers are stretching the limits of a platform or getting the most value out of the platform, also super critical. So even though the majority of my focus, I would say, is pre-sales, being closely aligned to the post-sales team who lives and breathes our customers was also mission critical to the success of myself and, and really getting in and understanding what this narrative looked like. Lastly, was partnering really closely with customer marketing um, and our marketing team because I wanted to make sure everything that I was doing um, on the front lines in active deals was then being translated into how we thought about our positioning and really how we thought about being top of mind when it comes to our enterprise and strategic customers. That's all been like the framework or the, the things I needed to have in place to be successful. Like every great startup is just about hustling and, you know, doing more than you ever thought you could do in the span of 10 hours. <laughs> How does this go down? There's some point in the sales cycle that an AE would pull you or someone on your team in to engage the customer. And then you are going to, I'm, I'm guessing here, but tell me if I'm right or wrong, but you are going to then ask some questions that benchmark, I guess, their current state and where they want to go in the future. Yes. And then you've got assumptions that you want to agree with with them on, you know, what is the associated business value associated with particular use cases or, or levers? All correct. So typically, like, I like to think about when to engage a value consultant is really after we have line of sight to budget. So as long as we know, and what I mean by that is not that it's a particular figure amount that we have to hit some threshold. It's more important to me, and especially in the space that we're selling in, a lot of the times like people are very leaned into our product um, and to what we're capable of doing. They've never bought technology before. So they don't even know the steps that they're going to need to go through. And so I always ask our reps, like, I just, I need you to qualify that there is budget <laughs> in some way, shape or form that we know that there is a buying process and that we are on that road or else we kind of need to take a step back and we don't want to confuse the situation by starting some of these motions too soon. So that's my biggest thing is like, we just need line of sight that we have confirmation that there is a buy that will take place at some point in the near future. You do all this work. And then I would assume the deliverable is some sort of a conversation guide that you would have with the economic buyer. Yeah. So we get brought in, we do a lot of discovery, understanding what's the language of value we need to report back in. What are the kind of critical things that we need to see and showcase I usually come back with an Excel or, or Google sheet of data inputs I need from the customer. And it's a great check in the sales process of how leaned in are you in this? Because you're going to have to do some work in order to really build out and justify why this piece of technology is going to be critical. It's an important step. And we start the process of transfer of ownership at that point. Typically, I mean, at this point, 
an NDA is in place because a lot of times in our sales process, we're asking to see the customer's technology as we think through how Pendo would be embedded and live within their customer experience. So usually that's already in place before I get involved. And so then they're gathering data. I'm gathering the critical benchmarks we have on our side. I then build the actual financial model that says like, look, over this time span, this is the kind of impact we think we're going to have. And then it's a conversation with you know the champion who's been helping us collect these data points in vetting and ensuring like this is where we want to go with this. And then we are co-presenting with this champion to whether it be one economic buyer or several economic buyers, that business case and jointly presenting the justification. And I think that is super important because, you know, as we are presenting forecasts on financial impact for someone from the prospective customer side to say, yes, I believe in this. And like, this is what I know to be true is really important and absolutely enables this to become a joint process and a joint deliverable and not something that we from Pendo are just pushing onto our, our customers. I think you just mentioned something that the devil is so much in the details of is, is the co-presentation. Then they don't question every assumption behind what you have created. Exactly. Exactly. And even when they do question it, then you have someone from their team saying, I vetted this with so-and-so-and-so and, so and, so, and can really stand up to it. Whereas if I was just presenting it, I don't, you know, I might have some insight into where this data came from, but I don't know the whole story and I don't know who's important versus who's not important. So it's really an important piece of this puzzle. Awesome. Well, if anyone wants to get in touch with you to maybe join your team or wants to learn more about value engineering, how should they get in touch with you? LinkedIn, best channel for me. <laughs> I uh, have eschewed a lot of my social media roots. <laughs> so uh, yeah, absolutely. Find me on LinkedIn. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopento. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thank you for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.